0: Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Are you ready? Then let's talk to God. Lord, it's very comforting as we address you, realizing that you know everything that we would ever say, Anything we would express to you, you know even deeper than our words, you know our thoughts. Even deeper than our thoughts, you know the true motives of our life. And Lord, you alone know exactly what we need. Because of that, we talk to you, we pray to you. We tell you that we're dependent upon you and that we need you and that we need you to revive us, to refresh the memory that in some cases has been lost, is calloused when we hear things about your son's suffering and death. For others of us, it's just new material. And Father, I pray that you would use the study today To draw us closer in relationship to you, in appreciation of you, and in respect for one another because of you. We're your family. We have all been redeemed by the same sacrifice. We've been cleansed by the same blood. That makes none of us better than anyone else. We all stand equal at the foot of this cross. So help us, Lord, as we muse over this setting, slowly, deliberately, to be more mindful and grateful. In Jesus' name, amen. We all know what billboards are. You go by them when you drive on the freeway. Those are those outdoor structures that are meant to advertise a product or a statement. I saw four that... Stick out in my mind as I was on my way to church here Um, One billboard was of a musician who's coming to town The other billboard was of a lawyer who is already in town Uh, The third was a casino not far out of town And the fourth that sticks in my mind was a billboard to buy a watch That they think you need to buy and wear Um, Sometimes and I'll show you examples on the video boards here, but sometimes uh, um, advertisements can be clever like this one. That's clever, to put a guy who needs to lose a little weight on the end of a billboard and slant it like that. Um, Other billboards are, are, uh, well, look at this one, they're political you drive by that and you'd get the point pretty quickly. Uh, Other billboards are are spiritual billboards. I don't know if you can read that, but can you read that? It says, well, you did ask for a sign, sign God. So you have a sign. Uh, Other billboards are are, uh, not so subtle. That's sobering as you drive by. It says, hell is real. And finally, there are billboards that when they're up, you wonder what on earth were they thinking to even put that up? It's upside down. It says, if you can read this, you've just had an accident. I don't think that's very cool. Do you? There's a billboard that God has displayed throughout the centuries on the pages of the scripture. It's called the cross. It's that. One message he has been advertising throughout the corridors of time. He's announced it on the lips of his prophets and his preachers. The message, the billboard of God throughout all of eternity is that God loves the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his own son. We are introduced to this thought as the banner billboard truth of God throughout the ages in two verses in John chapter 19. So turn with me to John 19 and look at verse 23 and 24. And yes, those are the only two verses we will cover. Um, That's because there are certain scenes that we dare not move through too quickly. And this is one of them. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments... And made four parts to each soldier a part, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. They said therefore among themselves, Let us not tear it, but let us cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers... Did these things. Immediately in these two verses. We're introduced to a thought. That the cross wasn't a new. Unexpected event. But that God had anticipated it throughout history. Because it was quoted. In a psalm. The event itself. Somebody once said. And I remember the saying. No other religion has at its heart. The humiliation of its God. I would only add to that and say that no other religion has anticipated in advance the humiliation of its God and made that the very focal point of all that it is about. We're introduced to that thought here. I saw a painting many years ago. I still recall it. It's a painting of Jesus standing in the carpentry shop at Nazareth. He's an adult by this time. He has laid down his tools in the shop. He is facing a window through which the sunlight, the afternoon-evening sunlight, is filtering through. In the picture, Jesus is looking up toward heaven with his hands raised. The sunlight is coming through, hitting him, and casting a shadow on the back wall of the carpentry shop. And if you look at the shadow, it looks like the perfect form of a cross and a man on it. The point of the painting as you study it is that The shadow of the cross was cast throughout the very life of Christ. The question is, how far back does that shadow go? How deep and how long does that shadow run? I want to explore that with you today. Now we look at these two verses and we discover the soldiers divided Jesus' garments. Why did they do that and why is it written? That was a Roman custom and a Roman law. That before a man was executed by way of crucifixion, that he was stripped completely bare. It was the ultimate and final humiliation. And that the garments of the prisoner would become the property of the soldiers. That was Roman law. The executioners would own any belongings that that victim had. They would divide them. The executioners, the soldiers, regarded the clothing or the possessions of Christ as their spoil. Their keep, their earn. And so they took them. Now how many soldiers were they? Do you remember? We told you last week and the week before there were four. And that was given the name Quaternion. A Quaternion was a squad of four soldiers. But the average Jewish male wore five pieces of clothing. An outer robe, below that a tunic, a belt, sandals, and a turban or a head covering. There's four soldiers, five pieces of clothing. Each soldier got one piece. The fifth piece, the tunic, they decided to throw dice for, cast lots for it. And they would decide who would get it. These soldiers were hardened men. They had to be. They fought wars. They quelled riots. They had killed many people like they were killing Jesus at this point. You've got to be a pretty hardened individual to not only take a dying man's possessions but before he's dead, to gamble for them at the foot of where he can watch the whole event, the foot of the cross. But the point of including these two verses isn't just to speak of human hatred and human revulsion, but rather divine anticipation. That is why John says all of this was done that the scripture, Psalm 22, might be fulfilled What John is showing you is that this cross cast a long shadow all the way back to David who wrote about it. Psalm 22, an amazing piece of literature. When David penned Psalm 22, he knew nothing about crucifixion, hadn't been invented yet. But in vivid detail, in Psalm 22, David writes about the exhaustion of... The physical torment of crucifixion, the unnatural position of the body during crucifixion, the raging thirst that ensues, nails that go through the hands and through the feet, several incredible details that could have only been known in the mind of God and then revealed to David. And that's why John makes mention of it. So today I want to take a journey with you based on these two verses. Let's see how far back that shadow goes. And I'm going to walk back with you from the cross, backward through time. First off, it was Jesus himself who predicted his own death. I just want you to imagine what that would be like. To live knowing exactly when you were going to die and exactly how you were going to die. Imagine what that would be like to live with that knowledge. On six different occasions in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus predicted his death. Three more times in the Gospel of Mark, then you have Luke and John. It's all recorded. I'm going to take you back, if you have a Bible and you care to turn there, I'm going to take you to a few places today. The 16th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. If you don't have a Bible, or you forgot yours, or you simply don't want to turn, no problem, I understand. I've cheated. I pre-marked my Bible. Matthew 16. It's a famous setting. Jesus asks His disciples two questions. Peter gets the A on the test. The questions are, who do men say that I am? The second is, who do you say that I am? Peter gets it right when he says, you're Christ, the Son of the living God. Now I think Peter feels a freedom to speak up because he got an A on the test. Um, Doesn't go so well for him in the second round. In verse 21 of Matthew 16, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. Again, I think Peter felt emboldened, empowered to speak up and say, Lord, we've got this one covered. We're going to protect you. Not going to happen to you. He did not expect what he's about to hear. Verse 23, but he turned, he, Jesus, turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me. You are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. Oops. Ouch. There were more times. If you just turn the page to chapter 17 of Matthew, if you're there, different place this time. Verse 22. Now while they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill Him. And on the third day He will be raised up. And they were exceedingly Sorrowful. Death was Jesus' constant companion. He knew how, He knew when, He knew where. He told them. He predicted His own death. The shadow of the cross fell upon His path every single day. And Just try to imagine what that is like. If you knew when and where you would die and how, you would live differently. You would live a very focused life, a very intentional life. And that's important to realize because there's a lot of scriptures that won't make sense unless you realize that. For example, in John chapter 7, it says, They, the rulers, sought to take Jesus, but his hour had not yet come. So they didn't take him. In John chapter 13, John begins, And Jesus, knowing that the hour had come for him to depart from this world and go to the Father girded himself with a towel, and started washing his disciples' feet. Or John chapter 17, as Christ prays, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may now glorify you. Or John chapter 12, as Jesus tells his own men, he says, and now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, for this very cause I have come to this hour. So we're dealing with somebody who predicted his own death, knew exactly where, knew exactly when, and lived with that constant knowledge. That was his focus. And because that was his focus, Jesus regarded as any suggestion to move him away from that focus as being satanic. That's why he said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You're not thinking like God thinks. You're thinking like men think. Actually... When Jesus heard Peter say, Lord, Lord, this is never going to happen to you. It was as if Jesus was thinking, I've heard that voice before. I know where that voice is coming from. That's coming from Satan because it was Satan who suggested the same thing. While Christ was being tempted 40 days and 40 nights out in the wilderness, the Bible says Satan appeared to him and showed him all the kingdoms of this world and their glory. And Satan said, all of these... I will give to you if you'll just bow down and worship me. Just give me a momentary pleasure. Indulge me. Just worship me for a second. I know why you have come. I know what you came for. You came to buy this world back, redeem this world. I'll give it to you. You don't have to go the way of the cross. You don't have to suffer. You don't have to shed your blood. Just worship me and I'll give it to you. Jesus said, away with you, Satan. And now when Peter is suggesting, this isn't going to happen to you, Jesus goes, I I recognize that voice. Get behind me, Satan. He regarded anything that would keep him away from the focus of the sacrifice of the cross as being satanic. Now that interests me that the devil, even the devil knew how important the cross was. It was a ladder to heaven. Jesus knew it. Satan knew it. So we're considering how far back the shadow goes. Jesus predicted his own death. Now let's go back a little bit further in time. Not only did Jesus predict his death, Jesus' forerunner predicted his death. The prophet who announced his coming, who is that? John, I call him John the baptizer. He really wasn't of any denomination, including Baptist at that time. It was just John the baptizer is probably a better term. I've always loved John the Baptist because he reminds me of a lot of my old friends. I had friends who dressed weird and ate weird things. They were hippies. And John just sort of reminds me of them. He's sort of that strange guy down by the Jordan River. He had a singular denunciatory message. Repent! was his first message. Repent! Got people's attention. Very powerful individual. John the Baptist believed that Jesus was the Messiah. But John the Baptist only saw Jesus as a living judge, not as a dying Savior. John the Baptist, like most Jewish people, anticipated the Messiah will come in gloriously and overturn the Roman government and set up shop, set up the kingdom. He did not expect a death at first. Now, I want you to follow me in my thinking. If you were to take the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and what we call harmonize them, or give a uh, chronological blow-by-blow rendition of all of the Gospel records, this is how it comes down. Jesus comes to the Jordan River to be baptized by John. After he's baptized, he goes into the wilderness for about six weeks, 40 days. After that temptation, he comes back to the Jordan River and sees John again, second time. So, here's John, he's down at the Jordan River. He's saying, repent, and listen to his message. He quotes Isaiah chapter 4. Woe unto you, you brood of slimy snakes, who has warned you to flee from the wrath that is to come. And speaking of the Messiah, he said, His winnowing fan is in his hand and he will thoroughly purge the threshing floor. He will gather the grain into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. It's a fiery preacher. It's hellfire and brimstone. And all of that would be accurate at Jesus' second coming, but not his first. So here's John bringing a very denunciatory message, but then three things happen. Number one, Jesus comes to the Jordan River to be baptized. Remember John's reaction? He goes, Lord, Lord, this is wrong. I shouldn't baptize you. You should baptize me. You have nothing to be baptized for. But now he realizes in Jesus' baptism that Jesus has come not to yell at sinners, but to identify with them. So he gets baptized. Blows John's mind. Second thing that happens is as he is baptizing Jesus, the heavens open and the Spirit of God comes like a what? A dove. Ever wonder why a dove? You say, sure, that's so churches in the next 2,000 years can have doves in the front of their church. No, that's not why. (laughs) To John the Baptist, who was the son of a Jewish priest, he would immediately recognize the dove as an animal of sacrifice. The lamb was the animal of sacrifice, but if you couldn't even afford a lamb, if you were the poorest of the poor, you'd bring a dove. So first, Jesus gets baptized, identifies with sinners. Second, a dove shows up. It tips him off that a sacrifice is somehow involved. The third thing is that Jesus goes away for six weeks, comes back, and the second time when John sees him coming to him, he says something very different. He says, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. What has happened between flee from the wrath that is to come and behold the Lamb of God? Well, six weeks have happened. And I believe that during that six weeks, John went again back to the scrolls of Isaiah from which he had taken his his cues. He had been quoting Isaiah throughout his early ministry. And he started reading some of the other passages in Isaiah, like, Isaiah 52, Isaiah 53, which says of the Messiah, He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before its shears is silent, so He opened not His mouth. And it clicked. He connected the dots. So as Jesus comes back, instead of a denunciation, it's an introduction. And He says, Look, behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. In that statement... He is announcing a sacrifice is coming. He is predicting the death, the cross of Jesus. He is the Lamb of God, the animal of sacrifice, whose blood will take away the sin of the world. Now John the Baptist is discovering that this Jesus will do more than all of the proclamations and denunciations of the law of Moses. If you have never read... Pilgrim's Progress, the book Pilgrim's Progress, please read it at least once before you die. It is worth the read. Charles Spurgeon read it twice a year. It's an old story written by John Bunyan. Um, The main character of the story is Christian. He has left his hometown called the City of Destruction. He's on his way to the Celestial City. You get the picture. It's an analogy of the Christian life. As Christian starts off, he's got a backpack on and it burdens him, it weighs him down. And the story relates the backpack as as his sin, and added to the sin is the law telling him he's a sinner. You're bad, you're a sinner, you're wrong, you're this and that. And so the law mixed with his sins is the burden on his back. So listen to how John Bunyan puts it. And I saw in my dream that as Christian came up to the cross, The burden loosed from his shoulders and fell from his back and began to tumble until it reached the mouth of the sepulcher where it fell in, and I saw it no more. It's a picture of coming to the cross of Calvary, the burden of sin, the denunciation of the law falls off, rolls down into the tomb of Christ risen from the dead, and I saw it no more. John is waking up, John the Baptist, to that realization. So Jesus predicted the cross. The forerunner of Jesus predicted the cross. Let's go back a little bit further. Let's see how far back the shadow goes before that. At the birth of Jesus Christ, his visitors at the birth also predicted the cross. Now, would you agree that Jesus had a very unusual birth? Not just the fact that he was virgin born, but the things that were happening around him at the time. I don't know about you, but when I was born, nothing remarkable happened. Well, my mom says, well, you were born, that's remarkable. But really nothing great in the world. I did a little digging to find out what happened when I was born. Only two really uh, things really stand out. Number one, the president of the United States, Dwight Eisenhower. Some of you are going, who? That's how far back it was. Dwight Eisenhower signed into law on my, the date of my birth, that the minimum wage wage in America should be raised to $1. Epic, huh? Also, the day I was born, a World Series was going on. And on my birthday, the Brooklyn Dodgers beat in the World Series the New York Yankees. That's, you're clapping for that? You go to the birth of Jesus, it's a whole different scene. There's angelic visitors. The sky has been lit up to allow the magi from the east to find the birthplace or the house where Jesus resides. But the language of these visitors is all predictive of a sacrifice. For example, what did the angel say to Joseph after he found out Mary was pregnant? He said, you will call His name Jesus because He will save His people from their sin. He will save His people from their sin. When the angels announced to the Bethlehem shepherds that a Jesus was born, He said, for unto you this day in the city of David a Savior is born who is Christ the Lord. All of that language is predictive of somebody who would come as a sacrifice, a Savior, a Savior, and pay for sin. Then those three gifts that were given by the magi to the child Jesus. Remember what they were? Gold. A gift befitting a king. Frankincense. Reminiscent of the priests. That's what they used in their sacrifices. The third is a little bit strange. Myrrh. Myrrh was a gummy substance that hardened. And it only gave off a beautiful scent when it was Crushed. Incidentally, myrrh was used in the ancient world to embalm the dead. It was embalming fluid. I'm sure that if you were a, a new mom and you just had a baby and somebody gave you a gift for the baby of embalming fluid, you wouldn't be too excited. But all of that was predictive. Why myrrh? When Jesus died, he was wrapped with myrrh, the Bible says. And myrrh was the substance that was placed around the dead person because of the smell of decay. and The myrrh would offset that. But as I mentioned, it only gave off a scent when it was crushed. What did Isaiah say? Concerning Jesus, he said, He was bruised for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All of that was predictive. After Jesus is born, Mary and Joseph take him to a temple, the temple in Jerusalem to be Dedicated to God. As they are there, there's an old man named Simeon who lifts up his head to heaven and goes, I can die a happy man. My eyes have seen your salvation. And then he says to Joseph and Mary, this child will be a sign that will be spoken against in Israel. And then Simeon pointed to Mary and said, and a sword is going to pierce your own soul. We'll read more next week as Mary stands at the foot of the cross. Her heart is broken because her son is giving his life. Jesus predicted his cross. His forerunner predicted his cross. The visitors at Jesus' birth predicted the cross. I don't know what plans you have for your kids, but every parent has some plans. Maybe my son will grow up to be this or my daughter will grow up to be that. But whatever plans you have, your ultimate plan is that they live. Live long. Understand that the whole reason for Jesus' birth was his death. He knew that. The Father knew that. Joseph and Mary would come to that recognition as time would go on. Now, let's step back even a bit further in time. From Jesus to the forerunner, to the visitors at his birth, all the way to the prophetic scriptures, scriptures of the Old Testament. The prophets, the Old Testament writers, also predicted the cross. don't know if you know this, but there are about 330 prophecies in the Old Testament predicting what the Messiah would do and be like in the New Testament. 330. Where he would be born, what tribe he would be from, where he would grow up, Etc., cetera, etc., cetera. what he would do, details about his death. Amazing. The Jewish people had always anticipated there would be a coming Messiah. One of their daily prayers was, I believe in the coming of Messiah. And even though he tarry, yea, I will wait every coming day. But what they were waiting for, like John the Baptist and like the disciples, was a conquering Messiah, not a dying Messiah, not a dying Savior. However, the Old Testament scriptures predicted the suffering and death of a Messiah. Now, without going back through all of them, I just want to take you to one one little place. If you're in John, go back one book to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. I want you to take a look at this. At Luke 24, this is after the death of Christ and after his resurrection. He's alive again. He's walking from Jerusalem to a little town called Emmaus because two disciples of his are also walking on that road. Verse 16 of Luke 24. But their eyes were restrained, so they did not know him. And he said to them, what kind of conversation is that that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Then the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? Imagine asking Jesus that question. And have you not known the things which have happened in, those, in these days? Can you imagine asking Jesus that question? They're referring to the things that happened to him. But, but look at what Jesus is. He said to them, What things? You know why he does that? He knows what things. He wants to hear them say what things. So they talk. The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our own rulers delivered Him to be condemned to death and crucified Him. But we were hoping that it was He who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, beside all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Yes, and... Certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. When they did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Now listen to Christ. And then he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And now here's a verse that I, in my spirit, drool over. And beginning in Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. If ever there were a conversation I wish would have been recorded, it is the one alluded to in verse 27. Beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The first Bible study Jesus gave after he rose from the dead was an expositional prophetic Bible study. I imagine he took them back to Genesis 22, talked about Abraham and Isaac like we mentioned last week. I imagine he took them to Numbers 21 where the snakes were biting all the people and Moses lifted up a serpent on a pole and God said, Look at that bronze serpent and you will live. And Jesus had said, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, the Son of Man must also be lifted up. I'm sure he took them to Isaiah chapter 52 and 53. The suffering servant passage is so clear of the suffering of the Messiah that would come. And I'm sure he took them to Psalm 22, the very psalm we started with in our reading. Because Psalm 22 begins and opens and closes with two sayings that Jesus uttered while he was on the cross. Including, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And their eyes started getting open. They go, I get it, I get it, I get it. So here's the deal. Those soldiers who were throwing the dice and gambling for Jesus' clothes as hardened as they were, as self-serving as they were. What's important to understand is that God had anticipated all of that and inspired David to write in detail about it in the 22nd Psalm. That's how far the shadow goes back. Jesus predicted it. His forerunner predicted it. The visitors at his birth predicted it. The prophets predicted it. I'm going to take you to one final place, take you all the way back, To see how far that shadow goes and where it started. So turn with me to Revelation chapter 13. You go, Revelation, shouldn't it be the other direction? No, it shouldn't. And you'll see why in a minute. Revelation chapter 13. Now, I warn you. The 13th chapter of Revelation is about a guy we call the Antichrist, not Jesus Christ. But Jesus Christ is mentioned here. You're dealing with an Antichrist who will come in the future on the world scene. The world will worship him because he's going to solve all the problems. They're going to give all of their love to, all of their allegiance to. This Antichrist is only a temporary ruler as opposed to the eternal ruler, Jesus Christ. And so they're compared. But I want you to see something very important. Because if we ask the question, how long is the shadow of the cross? Did it start with the prophet Daniel? In Daniel 9, when he first predicted that, then it goes all the way back to Abraham and Isaac and Mount Moriah and that whole scene. It goes back further than the birth of Christ. Goes pre-Bethlehem. Goes pre-prophet, pre-patriarch. Goes pre-creation. The cross was in the mind of God before the creation happened. Verse 7, Revelation 13. It was granted to him, him being the Antichrist, to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. All who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb. Listen carefully or watch carefully. The Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Before Jesus ever left heaven to come to this earth to take on a body of flesh, communing with the Father and the Spirit, the triune Godhead agreed, this is how it's going to come down. It's not like Jesus is about to leave heaven and go into the womb of a virgin, and God the Father said, "Oh, Oh, oh! before you go, one final thing I neglected to tell you. You're going to a cross to finish this whole thing off. It wasn't sprung on him. It was known before the foundation of the world. One of the apostles, Peter, wrote in his book, 1 Peter, We were not redeemed with corruptible things, but by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, a lamb without spot or blemish. Indeed, he was foreordained before the foundation of the world. That's what Peter said. So the shadow of the cross, it's a long shadow. It was in the mind and heart of the Godhead who shared that in part with Abraham and the patriarchs and the visitors at the birth of Jesus and John the Baptist. And Jesus predicted it himself. And here we read in John 19, just as David predicted and the other prophets, it happened. Think about it. The same God who said, let us make man in our image, knew that that image would become marred by sin and would require redemption and would have to send his son to fix that. That's why Charles Haddon Spurgeon, you hear me quote him a lot. He said, said, I could could sum up my entire theology in four words. He died for me. He died for me for me. Always a part of God's plan. I've got to tie one more bow on this package. Do you know when God picked you to be a son or daughter? If you think, yeah, the day I was saved. No. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4, you were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. At the same point, when God said, I'm going to send my son to redeem people, he knew that you would be born and chose you to be one of the redeemed ones. I sure hope the shadow of the cross has fallen upon your life, that you have basked under its dark shadow to find life. And if not, that today you will realize that God loves you. And you will realize in time and in space Something that had been chosen by God years ago. As you cooperate with that choice and give your heart and life to Christ. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org.